welcome back. This is episode 152 of Herbological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And I don't know how much of a gap we've left between previous episode and this episode. Hopefully not too long. I've uh, had a wonderful little trip to Thailand, and that obviously caused some logistical issues regarding recording. But uh, we're back and in full force again. (laughs) Yeah, we're back with full force. Ben, I haven't asked you about your trip to Thailand. Obviously, we saw a picture of you with a very large leaf. It was a pretty big leaf. (laughs) I think think that's actually the most popular social media post of all time for Herb Well, I mean, (laughs) who walks out and sees leaves that big on on a daily basis? Not many people. It was good. Well, society at large has been clamouring for more Ben content. But of course, you know. I think it was the leaf content. (laughs) <laughs> did you see any snakes while you were there didn't see any snakes no no snakes damn you can't win them all presumably you saw some nice birds incredible birds a really good toad was it a detophrinus absolutely amazing which yeah. uh, well we'll be talking about in the next episode actually is lined up we'll be talking about the spined toads they're very charismatic beasts outrageously so yeah but yeah, so we're back and we will catch up on the episodes we've missed, as we always do. I've also been like frantically writing up my PhD. My PhD is coming to a close. And so yeah, I've just been, yeah, nose to the grindstone writing, writing. So yeah, a little break was actually quite welcome. But yeah, we're back and we've got an episode this week about Burmese pythons, which uh, we always well, I don't think we've about. ever covered on the podcast before. Not once, <laughs> not a single time. I have no recollection of any Burmese python chat. How do you pronounce it? Burmese python. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we, we got a paper here. I'll just introduce it. It's by Currylo Fitzgerald, Goetz, Draxler, Anderson, McCollister, Romagosa, Yackel Adams, 2023. Natives bite back depredation and mortality of invasive juvenile Burmese pythons in the Greater Everglades Ecosystem, published in, and this might be a first, for the podcast, Management of Biological Invasions. Yeah. So yeah, Burmese pythons in the Everglades, we've talked about it a lot of times, as you said. They eat stuff, they're a big invasive snake, they came in the 1980s, ever since then they've just been munching their way through all the animals in the Everglades, obviously... (laughs) They, the Everglades. They, so they came with some parasites as well. I think that was the last time we talked about them is there were some uh, hitchhikers yep. along with the pythons, which have now spread to the native snake population as well. So yep. yeah, loads going on there. Loads going on. It's a fascinating, if somewhat depressing study system. Yeah. And I think people have kind of come to terms now with the fact that Burmese pythons probably aren't ever going to be eradicated using modern methods. You know, they're really good at hiding the Everglades is an ecosystem which is like quite incredibly unspoiled in many ways. You know, there's like one, I know there's a road going through Big Cypress National Park, which is actually where this study took place. But for the most part, there aren't roads. It's just wetlands. And so lots of places for the pythons to hide. And they don't muck about when it comes to breeding. Burmese pythons can lay up to 100 eggs. So they're not hanging about. The Burmese python in the Welsh Mountain Zoo, where I was doing my fieldwork, actually laid a hundred eggs, which is crazy. And afterwards, she looked like an old sack of potatoes with nothing in. <laughs> like someone had pulled <laughs> the potatoes a, out of a sack. Must be an undertaking. Yeah, I mean, laying a hundred eggs. I'm like, Jesus Christ! And just investing all of that in hundred eggs, like, yeah, she does eat rabbits, so 
she managed it somehow. But yeah, anyway, so we're talking about baby Burmese pythons specifically. We know that Burmese pythons eat lots of stuff. They eat birds, mammals, even alligators. And actually, there was a video of a Burmese python being dissected that had eaten a massive alligator, and it was crazy. They just like... Well, first they peeled away the skin, so you could see that the alligator was like inside this very thick stomach and then they eventually cut it out and it was just a whopping alligator i think the alligator was like close to two meters long inside this like three or four meter python behemoth of a python then probably more like five meter python actually it was a big female um yeah we're not talking about five meter pythons here we're talking about pythons that are like 60 to 90 centimeters the opposite end of the python spectrum yeah so yeah 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 and the good thing about them is they're small, but they're still pythons, so you can actually radio track them. There's enough space inside the snake for a radio transmitter. And um, I have said this before, you know, obviously all snakes are predators. So Burmese pythons are predators when they're young, but they're also kind of small. And snakes really, like once you boil it down, especially non-venomous ones, they are kind of just these tubes of meat, which are pretty delicious for lots of different animals. So when the pythons are small you know, there's a chance that they're going to be eaten by things. And this paper is basically just reporting all the ways in which the Burmese pythons, the juvenile Burmese pythons that this team tracked, met their maker. And there was lots of different ways, lots of different predators. So, yeah, I guess we just kind of get stuck into the different ways in which these uh, yeah. pythons well, there was their end. 19 of them to begin with. That's how many they started with. And it seems like it was part of a, a larger tracking project but this is just sort of focusing on the juveniles i think there might have been more than 19 i think it was just 19 that got eaten i didn't think they actually oh was it 19 that just got were. eaten was it yeah or it was 19 mortalities yes 19 mortalities yes you're right you're right you're i don't right, think they right. mentioned how many snakes that was out of oh but yeah 19 got that's mortalities. a shame mm. yeah i couldn't see it anyway that would be nice yeah yeah maybe that's being saved for a different one but yeah let's talk about it so i think first of all there was three pythons which were actually eaten by snakes. So we had a little bit of snake-on-snake snake violence here. And they were eaten by Florida cottonmouths, which are Archistrodon conanti. And I didn't realize that they were only elevated. That's The Florida cottonmouth only became a species like in 2015 or so. So I was thinking it was a recent one because I was like, I don't remember seeing this species epithet before. No, nor me. I'd never heard of it. And uh, it seems to have happened just before we started the podcast. So maybe we weren't, we weren't reading our... Uh, species splitting papers with to yeah. the same extent before or maybe it's one of those ones that's just taking a little bit of time to uh percolate into the rest of the literature and so we've probably read papers about cotton mouths and it's just not been a thing in them because people haven't caught up could be could well be or it's yeah. one that not everyone agrees with and therefore people are purposefully refusing to use it <laughs> could be that as well yeah it's always hard to sort of get an idea of what people think about new taxonomy yeah some people adopt it some people don't but yeah this three three cases three cases of them getting eaten by cotton mouse so it's not an isolated incident and there were a few observations of this happening before and actually one of the things they had in the paper which was really really cool was they found this big fat cotton mouth when they went to go radio track their baby burmese python and obviously <laughs> the implication was that the cotton mouth had eaten it and so they actually had the opportunity to x-ray the cotton mouth and they managed to do that without the cotton mouth sicking the python back up and the resulting x-ray of the cotton mouth with this like little Burmese python coiled inside it it's like a skeleton inside a skeleton is extremely cool it's very cool it's a very rotund cotton mouth it's, it's doing its best impression of like a gaboon viper yeah it looks fat <laughs> I just thought it was cool that they actually had access to an x-ray machine because we had 
one of our Escalapian snakes cannibalized another one and we really wanted to get an x-ray of it. I was like, imagine how sick it would be to have an x-ray of like the snake inside the snake. But it was, this was quite a while afterwards. So I was really more interested in seeing whether or not the radio transmitter was in there. Mm. But maybe we would have seen a bit of skeleton in there. But I called up a few local vets thinking, ah, oh, you know, they might just do it for free because it's quite cool. <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> hey, I've got a wild snake here that ate another snake. How man's that? Do you fancy doing the x-ray? And they were all just like, yeah, 100 quid, mate. <laughs> so <laughs> we just binned it off in the end. I mean, to be fair, it's pretty fancy gear, isn't it? So It is, yeah. And I think they had to, you know, regardless of the fact that it was cool, they'd have to like, you know, spend time. Their technician would still have to take the x-rays. Yeah, They were up for it. They seemed keen. And then I was like, how much? And they said a hundred quid. And I was just like, uh, yeah. Nah. <laughs> so what I did instead was get one of those magnetic stud finders that you used to find. <laughs> did it work? Option. It did work. Yeah, yeah, it did oh, work. Oh, amazing. The snake had actually passed the transmitter. He only had one in there, which was his own one. Yeah. yeah pretty crazy. <laughs> stud finder. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's some proper ecology, that is. That's great. Yeah, it was at our technician Reese's idea. I was like, mate, that is absolutely genius. genius. And went out and bought one yeah. straight away, which was like eight pounds instead of a hundred quid. <laughs> but yeah, so three of them were eaten by cotton mouths, which I didn't even know cotton mouths ate snakes, to be honest. That was quite a surprise to me. Um, which ones? Akistra John uh, Piscivorous. That Piscivorous. is cotton mouth, but that's the uh, more northern cotton mouth, I assume. Right, not the Florida one. Not the Florida one. Yeah. Ah. I think that's what that the Florida a... cottonmouth was split off from. Yeah. That's well, that's what, so my assumption would be a diet dominated by fish. Fish. Yeah. Fish. Maybe eels. Eels would why. be convenient. Yeah. Eels yeah. are snake shapes. They're a nice meal for a snake. Anyway. So yeah, we've got the uh, cottonmouths eating them. And then obviously you can't have a trip to the Everglades, although technically we were in Big Cypress National Preserve, which is just north of the Everglades. But you can't go to the Everglades and not talk about alligators. So five of the baby snakes were eaten by alligators. Seems to be quite a common demise for them, which, you know, is quite gratifying because, as we've said, you know, the big Burmese pythons sometimes eat alligators. Alligators had become quite accustomed to being the apex predator in this ecosystem, especially when they're fully grown. Burmese pythons came along, decided to try and topple them. But it's good to see they're seeking a little bit of revenge by eating the babies, eating the young. And I always like it when there are animals which at different stages of their life history are either predators or prey of the same animal. I love the idea of like, it's sort of like, get your own back. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, when I was a baby, fair, you trying to eat me. Yeah. Now I'm going to eat you. Yeah. Well balanced. Well balanced. Yeah. So we had five eaten by alligators. And then one of them kind of harks back to our... Um, episode well it's a few episodes ago now where we talked about snakes with dangerous diets yes because one yes. of these burmese pythons was actually a foraging death so it basically ate this massive rat is a hispanid cotton rat and the cotton rat weighed more than the actual burmese python by about i think it was like 100 grams to 120 grams or something like that but uh, the snake actually managed to swallow the rat 129 was the cotton rat the remaining snake carcass was 122. Oh, okay. So just a bit heavier. Yeah, yeah. So the snake was a little bit lighter than the rat, I should say. Yeah. Yes, okay. the snake so, was lighter than the rat, though. Yes. It's, so I think they said it was 103% of its weight was what they were going with. 106% of the python's body weight. So... Which is outrageous. That's like me <laughs> eating two Labradors in one go. I, Yeah, without... But the two Labradors are stuck together yeah, and... the human... What is it? The Labrador centipede. Are yeah, trying so, to resist. Yeah. So, yeah, because I was on the phone yesterday 
to my aunt and uncle and they've got a Labrador and that weighs 40 kgs, which is quite big for a Labrador. But I'm 70 odd. So plus 10 kgs for the second Labrador, 80 kgs. So yeah, that's insane. And unfortunately, it was more than the snake could actually handle. So despite the fact it managed to catch, constrict, subdue and eat the rat during the battle, there were a couple of claws stuck in the Burmese python so you could see what had happened and one of the rat's claws had penetrated the body of the snake and actually gone into the stomach and a hole in the stomach wall is not a good injury to get usually it would be fatal for a human I assume the same is true for a snake and also another claw had gone into one of the lungs yeah so yeah punctured lung combined with punctured stomach not where you want to be and yeah the snake appears to have uh, succumbed to its injuries after a few days so yeah, well done, Snake, for taking out a giant rat. But the rat got the did the rat get the last laugh? It's kind of a draw. I don't it? think anyone was laughing. That's mm. the problem. It's it's just a that's it. <laughs> another win for the flies. Just, yeah. So yeah, yeah, that was another way that one went. And then f- there was three which were eaten by what the authors describe as miso mammals. So um, miso means middle, right? Um, Miso mammals are defined loosely. I thought it was a type of soup, but yeah. <laughs> it is also a type of soup. A delicious, watery soybean broth. But the um, miso mammals are actually defined as something bigger than a rat, but smaller than a bear. So, so it's your, yeah, it's like your badgers and your smaller cats and your, yeah. and your weaselly-like creatures. Presumably yeah. humans. <laughs> Are we miso mammals? No, no. I think we're technically megafauna, dude, because we, oh, we yeah, bump we over that, that like 56 kg sort of threshold of a big wolf. I'd forgotten I was megafauna. That's nice to be yeah. reminded. Yeah, you're, you're not a meso mammal or a miso oh, mammal. God. Yeah, so um, <laughs> <laughs> then there were finally seven, which were unknown. They were just found dead um, in sort of mysterious circumstances. And, you know, fair play to the authors. Yeah, but this is, they highlight the problems of trying to identify what's killed a tracked animal. I mean, number one, you're showing up to the scene of the crime later than you would like. You're obviously, you know, there's a delay between the animal getting got and you realizing it's being got by it not moving, or um, they had like a mortality um, alert on their transmitters for 24 hours of non movement. So they were certainly on the scene sooner than if you were tracking these snakes and not that concerned about catching what's killing them. But even so, Everglades, very damp, humid, warmer temperatures. It's kind of the perfect scenario for rapid degradation of any biological matter, any deceased biological matter. So you're going to have a snake which is rotting away very quickly. And as it rots away, it's going to lose any sort of evidence, be that teeth marks or claw marks or how something was eaten or anything along those lines. Footprints, any of that is going to get lost pretty quickly. Yeah. And of course, you've got a whole bunch of animals that would scavenge secondarily a deceased snake. So it's even, yeah, you've got a lot working against you is my point. Absolutely. Yeah. They did think that some of them might have been due to birds because they were sort of like hanging in branches and stuff. But um... Right. You had one that was like a meter and a half off the ground, sort of in some grass and things. And some others were around perches or prominent perches that could have been birds it's hard to tell because of course some of them you're just left with a transmitter and no snake remains whatsoever (laughs) so good luck trying to work that out one of them they could work out because there were teeth marks feelid like teeth marks on the transmitter and you don't know what feelid it is it could be a smaller bobcat could be a house cat so they do sort of highlight that even those where they've got an idea it's still a bit of a mystery 
Mm, yeah, they did quite well. There was quite a lot of sleuthing involved in the ones they actually managed to work out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah seven out of 19, they couldn't work out. But I feel like broadly, kind of, you know, you zoom out to the ecosystem level and Burmese pythons are not getting eradicated. It's like impossible, really. So it is actually quite a good sign to see that these juvenile snakes are actually being eaten by a whole bunch of animals. It's kind of like the first step in a long journey to assimilation of this species in the ecosystem. You'd sort of hope so, wouldn't you? It's a weird one because we know that they're having an impact on things like mesomammal populations. But if they're also an additional food source for meso or meso mammals, then yeah, <laughs> you would expect it to balance out in some way as much as these things can balance out. And obviously nothing stabilizes, but um, you would hope there's not, you know, like a big decline of these mammals might be at least slowed by yeah. uh, some tasty snake snacks earlier in life. Yeah, yeah. For every python they eat, it's one less python that's going to get to five meters long and eat them, so... Right? Yeah. So yeah, there we go. Burmese pythons, big predators, but also, as it turns out, big prey when they are small, if that makes any sense at all. Let's move on, shall we, from uh, pythons to something a little bit different. So we got a paper here by Menagon. Lyakowa, Loda, and Tolly, 2022. Cryptic diversity in pygmy chameleons of the Eastern Arc Mountains of Tanzania with the description of six new species published in Acta Herpetologica. So. That's a lot of chameleons. That's a lot of chameleons, isn't it? And as the authors themselves will say very openly, they all look the same. They do. I was just sort of, as soon as you said cryptic, I was like, all right, I'm just going to roll through the pictures that they have in the paper and just sort of judge for myself how cryptic this diversity is. It's outrageous. <laughs> There's so much variation within a species that the variation overlaps dramatically sort of among slash between the species as well. So, uh, d- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just... They're not being is, helpful. No, they're. I mean, they say themselves, you know, there's really, if you want to differentiate these little tiny chameleons and the, they're called they're in a genus ramfolian so-called pygmy chameleons or african leaf chameleons they're really small and they mimic leaves and um they do look quite leaf-like yeah they do and they always look a little bit disgruntled i think especially the ones that have the sort of like little downturned nose yes. on. they look a little yes. bit sort of like oh, a tiny little leaf chameleon what the hell but yeah no they're really hard to distinguish morphologically and the authors of this paper make the point you know all of these species that are being described very little in the way of morphological differentiation. They're all on these little sky islands in the Eastern Arc Mountains. And um, yeah, each one, despite having been on its own evolutionary trajectory for like, you know, 20 million years in some cases, they don't look that different. But if you look at their genes, there is differentiation. They've got a phenotype that works in those places. You know, their physicalness works. Why change yep. it? If it ain't broke. You've reached peak chameleon. Yep. So, well, certainly peak peak sky island chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can never reach peak. It will change again. But exactly. We decided we'd just focus on one of these six new species because talking about six brand new chameleons might get a bit much. But if you're interested in these tiny little Ramfolian chameleons, I would encourage you to find the paper and read it. The pictures are sensational. And uh, yeah, this one we're going to talk about is Ramfolian rubejo or rubejo's pygmy chameleon. 
from the Rubejo Mountains. Am I saying that right? Is it Rubejo? Should have. Been. Oh, I don't know. I looked it up. But yeah, so um, the species is named after this mountain block called Rubejo, where the type series was located and where it's considered to be restricted. So it's just from this little tiny area in Tanzania. And um, yeah, as I said, if you've got a chameleon in a jar and you don't know which mountain it came from, good luck working it out without the genetics because they all do look quite similar. <laughs> but if you know where you are and where the chameleon came from, your chances are much better. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the classic story. You know, all of these mountain ranges used to be connected by more sort of contiguous, wet, foresty habitat. But the kind of eastern side of Africa has got progressively more arid. And that has meant that forests are only remnant on sort of higher altitude areas where it's a little bit cooler, a little bit wetter. And um, yeah, that's just led to the classic isolation of all these different types of chameleons. And yeah, they've just been spending millions of years in the leaf litter in their foresty areas, right. speciating undercover. And you'd expect them to be relatively limited dispersers too. They've only got little legs and they're quite small. So I mean, we're, well, actually, I can say how small. They're only, yeah, 40, 42 millimetres snout vent length with a tail of 10. So... We're talking a five centimetre long chameleon. That's all told. actually tiny. Yeah. <laughs> that is actually tiny. The maximum total length was 63 millimetres. Imagine that, being 63 millimetres and you're king of the canopy. Well, I don't Until know. A medium-sized bird comes along. <laughs> Medium. <laughs> yeah. A small praying mantis arrives. Yeah, crazy. But yeah, so after these six new species, we're up to 26 species of Ramfolian. And there's been a big burst in the last like 15 years of Ramfolian species being described because um, people are starting to look for them, really. And the authors of this paper specifically say that like there are probably more species to be described. There's lots of mountains in the sort of east and central areas of Africa, which haven't really been looked at in terms of chameleons. And um, yeah, people do. They'll probably find more species. And they're generally pretty range restricted, so they're under pressure from habitat loss. Some of these species uh, get collected for the pet trade, which, if they're only in small areas, could have bad effects, something which we don't really know that much about. But yeah, you know, we've got six newly described chameleons. We know they exist now, which is cool. They've all got names. And yeah, they're all these funny, like characterful leaves. little leafy guys. Yeah. They do just literally look like leaves. But, you know, they're doing the classic chameleon stuff. They're very visual predators. They're probably um, stalking around in the area's forest <laughs> looking for bugs. And yeah, with their crazy... From green to brown to dark brown to sort of tan with stripes. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is as well, like in the pictures, there's like variation in the colors. They might even be able to change those colors themselves. I don't know how much color change there is. You don't really see much about color change in the group. Ramfolian, so maybe it's not as pronounced, but it wouldn't surprise me if they could. Well, it might also just be a case of if you're only just describing them, you probably don't have them in nice controlled lighting conditions that you could do color stuff with. That's why everything's done on um, like Pampers and Parsons and stuff, right? Stuff that you can just pick up at the shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Panthers and um, what are they? Uh, not Parsons. Parsons are one of the monster whoppers. It's... I would have thought a monster whopper would be easier to work with. Yeah, just because yeah. you've got a bigger, know, yeah. <laughs> a bigger thing to get in frame. Yeah, Parsons are quite an unusual one, though. I know what you're thinking of. It's Calyptratus, whatever that is. The veiled chameleons. Oh, veiled. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, excellent to see more chameleons. Just a fun paper. If people are interested in chameleons, look it up. Lots of new leaf chameleons. 
So, Ben, have you got any other business? I do. I do have many other business. So we obviously went through our visual revamp of artwork and logo and things to something a bit more bright and colourful. And finally, after all this time, we now have some t-shirts of said designs available. Not a huge variety, just the two. We have a nice revamped chameleon, which people would be familiar with if they were a patron and got one of our stickers, right? They're the chameleons. Yeah, it's a flat-necked chameleon. We also have new, never seen before, blue tongue skink. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's super cool. Little blue tongue skink. And this blue tongue skink was requested, so... uh... I know there's at least one skink fan out there, Jafe. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully people will like the t-shirts. If you want to support the podcast, then wear a cool t-shirt. One warning is because they're a more colourful design. Do be careful with your t-shirt background colour choice because some of the combinations will be appalling. Yeah, don't go too wild. Orange and pink on red looks ghastly, so don't. <laughs> It'd be my advice. Yeah, at your own risk. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Any other stuff? We've got a few new patrons, which I've not shouted out. So first of all, we got Justin. So thanks very much, Justin. I know Justin's just embarking on a biology degree. So uh, good luck with that. I hope there's some Excellent. snakes in good there. Good luck. Yeah. And we've got another Patreon who is new called Jack. So yeah, thank you very much, Jack. Legend. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it, actually. I don't think we've got anything else in terms of Patreon news. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it for this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're on social media, at Herp Highlights. You can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com. If you've got any questions or you just want to get in touch or you want to share something cool with us. And, uh, yeah, I think that's about that there is so thank oh, you for listening we didn't even say where to get the, the shirts from the red bubble redbubble.com slash up highlights there you go <laughs> the intro's getting, loud, getting louder and louder <laughs> anyway thanks for listening everyone